and welcome to Gifts of the Weird. I'm Jan, your, your host, and I am really happy to have Alaric Albertson back with me and uh, to talk about his new upcoming book from Cross Crow Books. And uh, this is really fun to have him with me. We've been having a lot of fun talking off air prior to the beginning of the podcast. And we just thought, oh, well, we better actually just start going. <laughs> so um, here we are. Alaric is a founding member of the Key City Kindred, which is a kindred, a Germanic kindred affiliated with the Troth. Over the past five decades, Alaric's personal spiritual practice has developed as a synthesis of Anglo-Saxon tradition, country folklore, herbal studies, and rune lore. His books include To Walk a Pagan Path, Handbook of Saxon Sorcery and Magic, and he is the co-author of the Martin Rune Deck. He was a guest on episode 13 of the podcast with Taryn Martin to talk about the deck and Saxon's sorcery and magic. Alaric, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, it's good to be back. Let's talk about travels through Middle Earth, unless you have something else that you're dying to say about Ruby. <laughs> no, we should probably get to it or my new yeah. publisher is going to be angry with me. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your past to Saxon paganism. It's the same as it was the last time I was on this show. (laughs) (laughs) Except we add a decade. We did add a decade, pretty much, yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's been kind of a journey. When I first got involved in paganism, first of all, people didn't even call it paganism back then. There were a few people in St. Louis who were using the term uh, mostly because of Oberon Zell, but it hadn't caught on all over. Uh, the people I met, they just called themselves witches, and that's what we were doing. I didn't even hear about Wicca for like about six months or so. So a lot of things people assume is what everybody has always done isn't what everybody has always done. Uh, the first people I met, they were much more influenced by uh, Paul Husson, Louise Webner, Sibylique, people like that, than they were by anything about Wicca. But then I did hear about Wicca, and ultimately, you know, uh, there, Gerald, Gar- Gerald Gardner, not Gerald Gardner, the other guy, Ray Buckland, <laughs> wrote, I had a little brain fart there. Ray Buckland created the Sax Wicca tradition, and that really resonated with me on different levels. I really liked the English tradition. Now, he's been criticized a lot in the heathen community because it's not pure Anglo-Saxon. But if you go to everything he has written about it, anything anything he brought up, he never claimed that it was. He was very upfront that what he was creating was Wicca. It was a form of Wicca. He had two goals. He and I talked about this in the past uh, after I became a published author and could hang out and talk to Ray Buckland like we're buds. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, we talked about it, and he told me he had two goals in mind. One was to kind of get rid of all the power tripping. And that's one thing I really liked about the Saks tradition. You can't really be into ego and do Saks Wicca because – it's, it's just designed to short circuit that. There's, there are no leaders. There's, there's no, no great witch king or anything or like that. It's, in the Sax tradition, when you, are, when you become part of the Sax tradition, you're referred to as a yeseth, which just means a companion. So we are all companions. 
And yes, you can go on to be a high priest or a high priestess if you feel like running a coven, but these are jobs. You, know, you can be voted out of office. You don't have the final word. You are not the lawgiver. You're just another companion who's willing to do the dirty work. So that was one of his goals. The other goal was he wanted to bring back the worship of Woden because Ray was an Englishman and he wanted to bring that back. I think he did a very effective job. Now, to me, Saxwicca is one expression, one modern expression of Saxon, but obviously there are other expressions of it. I personally do not go with the just God-Goddess thing. I am a total polytheist, a believer in many deities. Um, but that's what kind of led me towards Anglo-Saxon was Saex Wicca. And kind of have always just rotated around that. It's not, I think it's important to know that it's not a limitation. Eclectic people always like, oh, I couldn't just limit myself to that. Well, I'm not limited to anything. I can do whatever the hell I want because, <laughs> you know, there's only one jealous God that I'm aware of. <laughs> and he's not Anglo-Saxon. You know, I do Anglo-Saxon. That's what I do. But frankly, I kind of have a sort of a thing for Apollo. And if I'm at something where there's going to be some ritual for Apollo, I always make sure I attend it. I think that's perfectly fine. It's like Anglo-Saxon's my family, but that doesn't mean I can't have friends. And anybody who thinks that, you know, like people who follow a specific tradition are limited, they just do not get polytheism because in real polytheistic religions, nobody was ever limited by this. I mean, you, you, these were the deities you worshiped because they were the deities of your people. But that's the whole point of being pagan. You recognize that there are other ways out there that are perfectly valid and equally valid to your own. Yeah, we've also seen as trade started moving through Europe and other lands that People adopted the gods and goddesses of other of other people mm -hmm. alongside their own. I mean, uh, the thing I found very uh, fascinating was finding temples and spaces to Isis all the way in northern England. <laughs> oh yeah, Isis was very popular. <laughs> so I mean, and that and she's Egyptian, mm -hmm. and you know, and once the Normans came in, you know, they worshipped together with those gods and they morph together and of course forming the anglo-saxon traditions that we know or that we're learning about now and we've seen so yeah we've just seen a lot of cross-pollinating i guess is a way to say it but you know just a lot of exchange of spirituality and the gods and goddesses working with other people and uh, and that just uh, brings to the testimony of the inclusivity of the Saxon practice, right? And the Germanic practice where it's not limited to, oh, you have to be of this particular heritage, this skin color, this. Now, people who do that obviously know nothing about their <laughs> heritage. Yeah, I mean, it, the Vikings went everywhere. I don't care what color you are. There's probably a little bit of Viking blood in you. Yeah, and and uh, we do know things. I mean, like there have been Japanese beads found in Viking temple hordes. So mm -hmm. and silk. Yeah. So there's there's been a lot of you know, a lot of touchy feely going on between these different cultures. And yeah, you know, it's like it says, I guess a Saxon. That's where I go. That's my family. You know, that's those are my gods. I don't really need to 
defend that, but I also it also it doesn't limit me. Excellent. So Travels Through Middle Earth was originally published in 2009. That's that seems like an eternity in some mindsets nowadays mm-hmm. of 15 years. That seems uh, well in pagan years that's practically pre-Celtic. So yeah, right. And, <laughs> and in publishing, I mean, the publishing industry is just such a fast-moving industry mm-hmm. nowadays um, that. A, a book is practically obsolete within a couple of years of its printing. Uh, but here you are, you're you're revising it and bringing it forth for an audience today. How did that come about? Well, I was kind of wanting to do it because um, I knew Llewellyn was taking it out of print. I, I absolutely love being a Llewellyn author. They have done wonderful things for me, but you know, there's disadvantages with being with such a large corporation also. And one of those is you any book you have has to sell a ton for <laughs> them to, to keep up with it. You know, they just have too many titles. They're not going to yeah. keep titles unless they're selling really, really big. And Travel to Middle Earth simply was not selling well enough for a publisher of that size. So they took it out of print. There was no hard feelings or anything. And when I asked them about it, they very kindly reverted all of the rights to me, just gave them all back. Here, here you go. And so I did want it to be printed again for different reasons, because I realized this is something that, I mean, depending on what I write, to walk a pagan path sells like there's no tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's it just appeals to a wider crowd. And I realize Travels to Middle Earth will always probably appeal to a specific crowd. You're not going to get the Hellenic pagans all excited about to walk a pagan path. You know, the Egyptian pagans, they've got their own path. They're not going to be interested in it. So it was written for people who either want to practice Old English pagans or people who haven't made up their minds yet. And the book was written for those people. If you're new to paganism as a whole, it can be a very valuable book to get you started. And obviously I'm leaning towards a certain direction. But I even say in the book, you know, if if it turns out that Greek is your thing, then go Greek. You know, nobody's going to be upset or anything. So, But anyway, it will never be a huge seller like something like To Walk a Pagan Path. But even though it's not a huge seller, it can be a very important book. Uh, one thing I love is are my English fans, people who actually grew up, you know, born and raised in England who have written me and said, I was so glad to see this book. Everybody writes about Celtic this and Celtic that, but my ancestors are Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> and you know, that just makes me feel really, really good when I get things like that. And um, the Druid organization, ADF, has been using Travels to Middle Earth as an introductory book for people who want to establish an Anglo-Saxon hearth culture. The Kirk Thomas, who is an Archdruid emeritus of the organization, he was the first person who let me know that it was being pulled he knew before I did that it wasn't going to be in print. And mm. he was very, you know, like disturbed about that because he felt like it was something that should stay in print. So I wanted it to remain in print. But at the same time, I'm a firm believer in moving forward. So I wasn't going to put that much effort. I wasn't going to spend my entire life trying to 
find a publisher for it. But as luck would have it, Blake Malloway from Cross Crow Books contacted me and asked me if I would be interested in them publishing it. So, uh, yeah, I started talking to them about it. And everybody on that team, they have been so wonderful. I can't praise them enough. So that that's how it started. To have an independent publisher like um, Blake from Cross Crow reach out to you, wow. <laughs> yeah, I was absolutely thrilled. And they have been wonderful throughout the entire process. My editor is a woman named Becca Fleming who I can honestly say is one of the best editors I have ever worked with. Now that we're done, now that we're done with that process, I can say it because, of course, when we were doing it, I hated her guts um, <laughs> because that's what you do. Yes. I mean, you know, I'm sorry. That's just the relationship with an author and an editor. You know, it's like, it's like having a newborn baby and you show it to somebody and they say, well, its nose is all wrong. You know, yes. yeah. <laughs> like, how dare you criticize my baby? But there are editors who handle that well and other editors who don't. And she was just an amazing person to work with. She made a lot of little changes, but they were necessary changes. And if there was anything that she wasn't sure, I mean, anything beyond a grammatical thing that she wasn't sure if I would be happy with it or not, she contacted me about it and said, this is what I want to change. And 99% of the time, I was fine with it. it. They were great changes. They made the work stronger. Um, now bear in mind, the book had already been edited once because it was published in mm-hmm. 2009. And my editor back then, I'll look at this really, really quick here and see if I... Carl, Carl Anderson. I mentioned him in the introduction. He did such a great job. I mentioned him in the introduction. And in... The introduction of the revised edition, I will have his name in there also, along with Becca Fleming, because even though it had been edited, I did revise it. And making revisions is really tricky because you wind up restructuring sentences, and it's a lot easier to screw up your pronouns and your plurals and, you know, things don't match up. And there were some mistakes in the thing that you know, just grammatical mistakes. And she went through and corrected all of that. And then, like I said, if there were things that she thought really should be changed that were not just purely grammatical, she asked me about it. And usually it was something that made it a much stronger work. So I was really thrilled with with Ms. Fleming. That's amazing. And you're right. A good editor who goes through and uh, looks at a, um, a manuscript and says, Beyond the grammatical stuff, because grammatical mm-hmm. is, you know, somewhat, I mean, it's not easy, but it's kind of obvious sometimes to mm-hmm. a reader. But when you get into editing, that's where you really have to say, what does this mean? Is this really accurate? Is this true? Or, you know, where is this coming from? So um, because they're really trying to make sure that it makes sense to the reader. Mm-hmm. They're, they're reading it from the reader's perspective, and, and they want a book that makes sense to the reader that answers the questions a reader might have, I think. And, you know, really, it's like at the same time, and this is what really got to me. She did her job in that respect. But at the same time, she I felt like she really respected my voice mm-hmm. and my and what I was trying to say and didn't, didn't change anything around. I've had troubles with editors in the past where they didn't like the way I said it. So they said it a different way. And it's like, 
that's not the same thing. Yeah, that doesn't say you just what I said. Change the meaning. You know? yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. So going to that, what are uh, and, and I know you can't be specific about everything, but how updated or revised is the book? And what are some of the the things that you were able to to change or add in that has kind of been revealed to you over the last what fifteen years since you originally wrote it? Okay, well, let me start out by saying this is not a new book. It's the same book. They gave me complete leeway on changing whatever I wanted to change. As I went through it, I realized it really holds up well. There, there wasn't that much to change, but there were changes that I made. One thing I did, just because, you know, everybody loves runes. Yeah. I uh, yeah, I added the rune poem in on the chapter where I briefly touch on runes. So I did add the entire rune poem into it. Um, there were things, changes that I made because I've learned things since then. And sometimes we're just wrong about some things. Uh, the meaning of Letha for the midsummer holiday, I was wrong. So I updated it. You want to know what the correct answer is? Get the revised division version. Absolutely. We're not revealing um, it here. No spoilers. Yeah, no spoilers. <laughs> and I don't feel bad about that because the things I was wrong about, of course, you know, there are probably things in it now that I'm just wrong about. And as time goes on, I'll find out more. Uh, I can tell you that in the late 70s, if you talk to somebody and you were trying to talk to them about Anglo-Saxon, Whoever you talk to, history experts, like right, we tell, oh, we don't know anything about them. It's like it's really hard to learn anything about them. We know so much more about the Anglo-Saxons now than we did then. Uh, there are so many people, Anglo-Saxon scholars, who really delve into things, and and we've we've learned so much. So, yeah, and I don't pretend to be some great Anglo-Saxon scholar. I'm a person who's just trying to share my spiritual path with other people. Uh, but the work that these people do, I pay attention to it. Even now, I'm like on a bunch of Anglo-Saxon Facebook groups. And, mm-hmm. you know, I read what's coming out and what's new and what people are learning. And I try to integrate that when I can. Uh, and sometimes you learn things where you have to make corrections. And then another thing I wanted to c- correct, and I don't feel bad about it. It was just a growing thing. When I was published in 2009, I had never published a book before, certainly not a Llewellyn book that was put out in bookstores all over the world. <laughs> you know, so I was this American boy who was writing for Americans. And I realized, you know, as I wrote a couple other books, they were coming out and everything, how Travis from Middle Earth really was not that inclusive. So I made changes in the text through that, too, where I tried to include more cultures than just that of America. Uh, And I had help from people. Steve Halcyon gave me some information about English culture. Juan Espinoza talked to me about Peruvian culture. Uh, uh, Santi Gennari gave me information about Argentina. So I talked to different people who had become fans of mine, fans of my books, who live in other countries. And we kind of made it where it's just more inclusive for people in other countries. And I think that's really important because 
you know, as an American writing Anglo-Saxon, I realize that Anglo-Saxon is not a place, it's a culture. And that culture can be anywhere and among any people. Uh, there are a lot of South Americans who consider themselves Anglo-Saxon spiritually. There are enough where I've actually started to brush up on my Spanish simply because I feel like I should meet them halfway. They shouldn't always have to be speaking English. A veces puedo hablar español. Sounds like a Spanish version is coming. Well, there hasn't been. I would love to see a Spanish version come out. Uh, the only book that Travels to Middle Earth uh, has only been published in English. Uh, to Walk a Pagan Path has come out in French. And it's the only book I've written that's come out with more than one language. But I would love to see a Spanish version of, well, any of my books, really. Um, yeah. But especially these, uh, either this Travels to Middle Earth or a Handbook of Saxon Sorcery and Magic, because there are so many people uh, you know, in South America, South and Central America, who are interested in Anglo-Saxon praxis. I've read both books now. And I do admit that the, my first reading of Travels Through Middle-Earth was at least 10 years ago, 10 to 12 years ago, actually, mm -hmm. because I have a first edition. And one of these days, if I ever know that we're going to be in a space together, I'm going to bring it so you can sign it. Because oh, I'd love to do that. <laughs> I um, was able to read a pre preliminary copy of the revised edition. Now, of course, I don't have the original memorized, so I don't know every page. But I do have to say that I remember re loving then, or and I know loving now, the accessibility of the book and how it feels like I, I don't feel like oh if I'm not like this I, I'm excluded or I don't feel like that there's any talking down like I have to know something more than I do in order to access it it's very accessible it's uh, I'm going to use the word basic and, and I don't mean it in a bad sense mm -hmm. it's basic because it's a very good way to pop in well, and I'm glad you're feeling that way because if it had, then I totally screwed up because that's what I was going for. <laughs> I remember when Christopher Pinzak was one who talked me into writing this book. And when he, we were, I was about six hours from home by car or truck when we had this conversation. And I was like saying, no, I'm not going to do that, you know. But then on that six-hour drive home, I realized, no, you know, I think I want to do this. I want to write this book. And I knew then not only what I wanted to write, but that I who I wanted to write it for. And that Travels to Middle Earth ultimately was written for a 17-year-old boy back in 1971 who was <laughs> desperately trying to find his spiritual path. And, you know, there are so many books out there who say this is the way you have to do it or whatever, you know, and either that or give you this amorphous, do whatever you feel like, you know, it doesn't really help either. Mm -hmm. um, and I just wanted to cut through all the crap. And, you know, I'm going to be speaking as a pagan person, as a Saxon pagan person, which is why it's called the path of the Saxon pagan. But I wanted it for anyone who was new to this. So if anybody picked up that book and 
felt like I was trying to tell them what to do or that they weren't smart enough to do this, then I, I failed. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I really enjoy about the overall message of the book, to me, the just do it concept of connecting to the gods. And I'm going to quote you from page 20. Well, from my page 22, (laughs) if you feel moved to speak with the God, with a God or goddess, then do so. I love that. Do so. Just do it. That's such an amazing piece of advice. Well, that's kind of important. You know, there's (laughs) one thing I bothers me about paganism today is it's for so many people, it's become like a reading habit. Or something, you know, paganism isn't what you read. It isn't even really what you believe. It's what you do. If you're not doing pagan, you're not really pagan. So, yeah, get up and do it. Just yeah. talk to the gods. What's going to happen? The, the thing that I walked <laughs> away with more than anything in this book that sticks to my mind, and there was other things that I had notes on, but it was just this. If you want to talk to the god or uh, talk to a god or a goddess, just talk to them. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I mean, I'm not going to say that, you know, I mean, yes, obviously, you know, if you want to get down to it, there are better ways. You know, there's a better way to do this. You know, you you can learn a little bit more to you can approach them and what wording oh. you use. There are better ways. But there, be if you've never done this before, they know you're new. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not like they're, they're going to be surprised because you didn't get all of it right. Just the very fact, after being ignored for centuries upon centuries, suddenly you are turning to the gods and speaking to them. Yeah. They're going to be thrilled. One of the other things that I wanted to bring up that I really appreciated in the book is the connection to the natural world through the elves and dwarves. And that aspect of things, because personally, even whether it was a direct result of reading Travels Through Middle Earth or just my natural inclination or my natural being or a combination, I'm sure there was a lot of combinations. I'm sure you influenced me wonderfully in my early paganism because I kind of got into paganism about 2006, seven, And so your book came into my life right after that, early, very early on. Um, was just the being aware of the other beings and entities that are around us other than gods and goddesses. Mm-hmm. You go into, uh, as a big part of the book or as a part of the book in a couple of chapters, you know, talking about connecting to the mountain elves or the land elf uh, spirits, mm-hmm. the, the being, the sea spirits that are just around. And then even your house spirits and, one of the things that I find in a lot of paganism today and heathenry and druidry is the only way to get in touch with them is when you're out in the middle of the woods somewhere. That is a wonderful experience, but most of us, most people live in modern cities and modern mm-hmm. areas and we have modern conveniences. How do, how do you think is a great way to connect to those beings? Because I think they get ignored a lot. I think our city elves, our city dwarves, they get ignored a lot. And what's a way that you think we can incorporate them and embrace them and bring them into our fold, as well as our own house elves? Well, some of it is simply a change in our consciousness. I mean, 
-hmm. most of what, um, okay, we have all these books on paganism, different books on, even though we talk about us being pagan, the fact is most of us are first generation. Even people who write books, even wonderful, fascinating people like me, first generation, you know, and I don't care who you are. It's one of those things that you you work on, but you're not going to be perfect at it. We don't leave all of our baggage at the door. It just doesn't happen. Some of that comes in with us. That doesn't mean you're a bad person. It's just something you have to watch. A pagan who was raised Catholic will have certain attitudes about how religion should be practiced that will be different than a person who was raised Presbyterian. You bring things in. You bring concepts in. I have seen pagans arguing with each other over things and realized these aren't pagans arguing with pagans. These are Catholics and Protestants arguing. Something like that. You know, it's like, who were you before? Some of that comes in with you. And for most of us, first generations, we came from a monotheistic culture where the God was the only thing really worshipped. So, so much modern paganism tends to be focused just on the gods. But historical paganism, there were other aspects of it, too, that tend to get really, really ignored. Um, I love to see families that have a strong ancestral worship to their practice. Um, and the other would be families that are individuals that have a very strong connection with the nature spirits, with the little spirits around them. You know, everything has spirit in it. There also tends to be this concept that we are not part of the world somehow that nature is something over there in the corner. And that's just not true. We are totally dependent on nature. Mm -hmm. You know, I, we may be able to get to the grocery store to buy orange juice in January, but we are still dependent on the or orange juice coming from someplace on this planet. <laughs> right. Yeah. We are connected to the world. And so the spirits around us are very much there all the time. You don't have to be out in the middle of pristine wilderness. It's lovely if you are, you know, but mm -hmm. any place you, you're at, you know, most of the time you're most most of the time most of us are not going to be in that setting. And just because you're not does not mean that you're not surrounded by spirit. I think it's really to me it's very important to keep a peaceful relationship with your house elves. Things just go better when the house elves are behaving themselves. I think that's a wonderful way to explain it. And I and I love that. Thanks so much. Well Alaric, we have been talking for an hour or so. Wow. And we've covered a lot and we could cover so much more about the book, but I think people should just pick up your book. What do you think? I think they should pick up the book. And if they have a, a, an older copy like I do, um, they could pick up a new copy of the book or they could just revisit the old copy again and read it and um, be up to date with everything that's going on. Yeah, I prefer that they get a new copy. I do. I think you would. <laughs> well, no, seriously, I mean, not just because, you know, I mean, I'll get a royalty, but because I really think the new copy is very much worthwhile. Um, if, if you don't get the limited edition that's coming out this year, next February, I think it is. So it's when the paperback will come out. Oh, and I want to give kudos to somebody, two other people, too, if I can. 
Absolutely. Uh, with the publishing company. Uh, they're not in my in the introduction where I acknowledge everybody. They're not listed there. And that's basically because I try to keep my acknowledgments just to people who are involved with the text of the book. I don't want to be like these movies where they show you who brought the donuts and who did Tom Cruise's hair and crap like that. You know, so I just try to keep it just people who were involved with the text. However, there are people beyond those who are involved in the production of the book. And I have been so pleased, first of all, with Wick Malloway, who's Blake's brother and also one of the owners of the publishing company. He was my cover artist, and he did such a great job on the covers for both books. But I also really appreciate the fact that he kept me in the loop the entire time and asked for my feedback. Uh, this is no reflection on Kevin Brown, who did all of my Llewellyn books and did an awesome job. But being part of the process just really makes me feel really good. And then also, Gianna Rini was, did the interior design. And a lot of people don't understand that that don't even know this person exists. But the person who does the interior design, that's why a, the interior of a book doesn't look like a bunch of typed pages stapled together. You know, that's the person who makes the book look pretty on the inside. And she tried to bring me into it. And she asked me my opinion. And my first response was, I literally don't even know what my options are because no one has ever asked me about the interior design of the book. But she has done some great work. There's The book is so beautiful. Uh, it, it has like these flourishes at the beginning of each chapter and on the page numbers and everything where you really feel like you're stepping into a different world. So Gianna Rini is another person who I really want to acknowledge. Both of these people, the artists who put the book together, were amazing to work with. Excellent. And as you mentioned, um, there's going to be a special limited edition hardcover. The pre-orders will go on sale in August. And the paperback is scheduled to be available in February of 2023. And people can pre-order through their website, uh, Cross Crow Books. And there, there will be a link uh, to Cross Crow Books uh, in the uh, show notes. And I'm sure you can order it on Amazon, but we will ask our faithful listeners to please try to order it either directly from Cross Crow Books or ask your uh, local bookstore if they could try to get your local bookstore to order it in that would make me so happy if we yeah. get it into the bookstores a copy for you uh dear listener and an extra copy for the show yeah for the next uh, person <laughs> so uh, alaric i really appreciate you joining me for this time oh my this was so much fun talking about uh saxon paganry or, or saxon practice and uh, there's so much more and i really really enjoyed rereading the book again i i really appreciate that you wrote it well it's always a pleasure to be on gifts of the weird thank you for having me thank you for listening please have a look at the show notes for links and well notes podcast is available from podbean itunes spotify stitcher google play and other podcast catchers Feedback and reviews are greatly appreciated. Please follow me on Instagram and Twitter at, at @weirdgifts1 and on Facebook at, at Gifts of the Weird. And email me at giftsoftheweird.com. Thanks and have a great day.